Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 17, from verse 1 to the end, and chapter 18, from verse 1 to 10. Revelation 8, 17, 1 to the end, and 18, 1 to 10. One of the seven angels who had seen, who had the seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the fields of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the, abom and of the abominations of the earth, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the, when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five, has five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one, one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw, where the, where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw, you saw will hit the prostitute 
They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over the beast, hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the, king, the kings of the earth. Chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I, then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her, give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she, she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Then the king of the earth, who committed adultery with her, and shared her luxury, and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning. They will weep and mourn over her. Verse 10, the last verse. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In an hour, your doom has come. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Peter. I think that man needs a round of applause, does he not? <laughs> Possibly also a medal. I can only imagine what you thought when you received that last night. One of those, uh, one of those texts that really needs no explanation. So I'll keep this one short. <laughs> Now, actually, Amy, Amy did say to me this morning before the service, she, said, she was just talking to John and I about the service, and she said, oh, Johnny, then you'll, you'll give a brief message. And I said, I never agreed to that. Uh, and uh, Amy's actually been away this week, almost the entire week, so prayers for our children are, are welcomed. And um, consequently, I was looking after all four of them on my own, and uh, didn't maybe have quite the time... Uh, to give uh, to this that I might otherwise have had. And it, I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about Churchill and that famous quote where he said to somebody, if I had had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. So uh, strap in, folks. <laughs> now, why don't I pray as we begin? Father, Father, thank you that um, you've spoken. Your word is... A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. 
these words that we've had read are perplexing to us. But I pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, by the presence of your Son, Jesus, and hopefully also by what I have to share, that you would make known your ways and your paths for this church. And I pray that as as Claire has already prophesied, that the result of this would be a house of your presence where people are healed even as they walk past. I just pray that your anointing, King Jesus, would flow in this room and that what you desire to be plain today would be made plain, either through what I say or in spite of it, for the glory of your Son, Jesus, for the equipping of your children, the saints, to do works of ministry for the blessing of the world. Let your kingdom come, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just this last week, I did have actually one day to myself uh, and uh, had an opportunity to go to that there, London. Some of you have heard of it, I know. Well, it's a city in the south, if you haven't. Uh, where things happen from time to time, coronations and the like. But actually on Mondays, uh, arguably uh, equally uh, significant event, it was the Leadership Conference. And uh, it's run by uh, HTB. It's been uh, going for, for a number of years, but it hasn't actually, we haven't gathered for the Leadership Conference for a few years for COVID and various other reasons. And it was hosted at the Royal Albert Hall. And our, our ordinance, who are our trainee vicars, and myself had an opportunity to go along, and I had a great time. We spent the day just hearing loads of different inspiring things. But if I, if I had to choose my high point, personally, it was somewhere later on in the morning, and a diminutive woman walked out on stage, 5,000 people gathered in the Royal Albert Hall, and this diminutive woman walked with her translator. This woman, it turns out, was from North Korea, a Christian from North Korea. And as she walked out onto the stage, initially one by one, and then row by row, and finally, block by block, people stood to applaud her. It was one of those profoundly powerful, simple acts of encouragement, I suppose. And it it felt like a snapshot of heaven where this woman who'd experienced significant persecution, as I'm about to go on and detail, was surrounded by almost the great cloud of witnesses. It's a beautiful moment. And she sat down and Nikki Gumbel interviewed her uh, through her translator for a little while. And we heard a bit of her story. For those of you who don't know, North Korea is the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. And this woman... Her, her husband, um, he, was, he was imprisoned for being a Christian. He died in prison. Before he went to prison, she didn't know he was a Christian. It's so dangerous to be a Christian in North Korea, you can't even tell members of your own family. She later was herself arrested. And she was arrested not for the crime of being a, a Christian. Nobody knew that. She was arrested uh, for fleeing. She actually fled the country to China. But while in China, she was recaptured taken back to North Korea, and she spent three years in prison. While in prison, she stayed in a, a, a cell with uh, 150 other women, a cell that was built for 50 people, was housing 150 women, and it was so crowded that when you went to the toilet, and it was one toilet for everybody in that cell, when you went to the toilet at night, that meant you were surrendering your space on the floor, so you had to stand for the rest of the night. 
And as she said, in the midst of all that, um, that they received rations. They had a, a kind of a rotten piece of corn every day for their food. And she sensed the Lord saying to her, in the midst of that, I want you to share. And so she said, well, Lord, what am I going to share? I've got nothing to share. He said, well, why don't you share your food? And so she would give out two-thirds of her rations to other people and just uh, survive on a third. Incredible a kind of witness and testimony of the generosity of God in this moment of extremity. And in the midst of that, she felt the Spirit of God, the, the voice of Jesus speaking to her again. And he said, why don't you start a church? And she said, well, Lord, I can't start a church here in literally the belly of the beast, the heart of darkness. How am I going to start a church here? And she said, she sensed Jesus say it. So she was obedient. She said, well, where will we have this church? And he said, well, find the smelliest place. So they would gather in the toilet. And what would happen is that one person, there was two or three of them, one person would go into a cubicle, and the other two would line up as if waiting to go. And they would whisper just brief scriptures or simple prayers in moments. to capture a moment of devotion in the midst of this place. And then if they were interrupted, they'd stop and just imagine themselves waiting. Or just pretend that they were just waiting for the toilet. Now, this is, a, in many ways, for us Westerners, for those of us who've been kind of schooled in, in the environment of, of Western Christianity, it's an unimaginable environment to begin to think about pursuing faith. But actually, for the churches who received this letter, which is a prophetic letter uh, with, that we now know as Revelation, this would be a lot more familiar to them. John writes, doesn't he, while he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he's there marooned out at sea on this rocky outcrop because of his faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of an empire environment in Rome. And we've been talking throughout this series about how what John and Jesus are, are beginning to speak into is what it looks like to live out your discipleship on the edge. And the word that, uh, that is translated for us as revelation is ac- actually apocalypsis or apocalypse. And it means unveiling. It's the lifting of the lid to see what's really going on. Fans of Leonard Cohen or Jeff Buckley might remember that, that line in the, the song Hallelujah. There was a time when you let me know what's really going on below. Now, that line always comes to my mind as I'm thinking about Revelation because this, is, this book, that, which is a letter to a series of churches and to us, is an indication. This is God showing us what really is going on. It's, what really, what's, it's what's really going on in North Korea. But it's actually also what is really going on in our world. It's written to disciples, particularly actually urban disciples, trying to work out their faith in the midst of a hostile environment. And though we don't live in environments like North Korea, Revelation has a profound amount to speak to us because we also live, and I don't want to overplay this, but I really also don't want to underplay it. We live in an environment where it is increasingly hostile to faith, not necessarily in the same ways as in North Korea. Let's not pretend it is. But if you are in Nottingham, and you are, unless you're visiting from some far-fetched place, some far-flung environment, 
If you're living in an urban environment in the West, Satan is not going to be seeking to take you out by outright aggression, but through apathy. Not by persecution, but through passivity. And these things are as damaging and as dangerous to vibrant faith as outright persecution. And unless we wake up to that, we are going to sleep as the church in the West, and this is what has been happening for generations, we're going to sleepwalk our way through our lives, miss the call to radical discipleship, and we will make no impact on the world. And we will fail to see the fullness of the kingdom of God that Jesus died to bring us. Now, John's apocalypsis, easy for me to say, John's apocalypsis comes full of imagery and symbolism and it's difficult to, to, to get hold of because it's so foreign to us. Mark just said it beautifully a couple of weeks ago, it's like political cartoon. These are encoded symbols, maybe to keep it kind of hidden from the empire, I, I don't know why exactly. So when we read it, we have to do a bit of digging. I am going to try and do some digging, but I can't do all the digging because I've probably only got about five minutes left of whatever else Amy's given me this morning. So let's do a little bit of digging. So let's begin, begin really and end. We'll say a bit about the beast, but we're going to say most about the woman. John sees a woman. Now when Mark preached a few weeks ago, he also saw a woman. This is a different woman. That woman was, uh, she had a scepter in her hand. If you remember Revelation 12 and 13, you can read this on your own dime in your own time a little bit later. Uh, but that woman was symbolic of the people of God. And the dragon was after her, seeking to take her out. This woman is described rather differently. We might say she's almost the opposite of that woman. This woman is described as the harlot or the whore or the prostitute. She doesn't have a scepter in her hand, but she has a cup. And the cup is full up of her own, the filth of her own immorality. Folks, this is not pleasant stuff for your Sunday morning. My Bible here, which is a different version to the NIV, but the title heading is The Great Whore and the Beast. And I know most of you, when you've read Revelation, and if you've ever heard Revelation preached, you've shut your Bible by now. You got to the end of the letters and you shut it because all of this stuff was far too complex. And I don't blame you. This is who this is. She's uh, not a popular character when it comes to the church, but she has significant power. Now, John or Jesus giving this image to John is really kind to us because she actually has her name written on her forehead. We see this in verse 5. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. <laughs> Just a nice, snappy, catchy title there for you. If you're trying to remember who this, one, uh, this, this woman is, that's the one that I need you to learn. Babylon the Great. Let's just go with Babylon. Should we just shorten that to Babylon? Notice she's not just the whore, the harlot, the prostitute. She's the mother of prostitutes. There's something about her which is, uh, she's not just the thing in and of itself, whatever that, that is, and we're going to come to that, but she also releases, she multiplies herself. She's not just a thing, but she is uh, 
a multiplying thing, if you like. She's the mother of all Babylons. And we find out that she's drunk. Not drunk on wine, but there's kind of a parody here of the Lord's Supper. She's drunk on blood. And she's drunk on the blood of the saints and the martyrs. And she is adopting a particular posture. Now, this posture in biblical kind of imagination is a posture of authority. It is that she is seated. Those of you who've read the Gospels, you know when Jesus taught, he, he used to sit to teach this kind of a rabbinic posture, and it connotes authority. And she sits, as you can kind of do, rich with imagery in three different ways on three different things. So let's just go through them really quickly. Firstly, she sits, verse 1, on many waters. Some versions say by many waters. It's the same preposition, on or by. It could mean either. But let's just say she sits on many waters. Verse 15, again, John, not in order. It's not logical. It's not sequential. It's not really even rational. But later on in verse 15, he tells us that the waters that you saw, the angel tells us the waters you saw that she's sitting on, they're the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, this woman, whoever she is, has authority over nations and peoples and languages. She's profoundly influential. She has some kind of role of influence and government. Secondly, she sits on a beast. We've come across some beasts before. Here's the beast rearing his ugly head, literally. Once more, the beast represents political power manipulated by the dragon, manipulated by the dragon who is Satan. So the the woman sits on or is supported by, she's energized by, She's enabled by the beast, by political power, manipulated by Satan. That's where she's drawing her influence from. We have, if you like, an unholy trinity here. Thirdly, she's sitting on seven mountains. Now, I'm not going to go into any detail here again. I know this is all very, very symbolic hugely kind of complex imagery, at least to us. But if you were of the day, if you heard about seven mountains, your mind would be taken immediately to Rome. Rome was a city founded on seven mountains, seven hills. So she's founded on Rome. She she sits on Rome. She has influence. Hey, kids. She has influence on Rome. Talk about that in your group. The dragon and the beast and the the, the (laughs) prostitute. So, (laughs) she sits on Rome. Now, Rome is merely the latest incarnation of empire. The latest incarnation of Babylon. And so really, as we're thinking and talking about Babylon, we're going to get to what that is in a second. We don't just want to be thinking about Babylon or thinking about Rome as one particular incarnation of whatever it is. We need to be talking about Babylonness. It's like an identity, like a spirit, a way of acting, a way of being that John, that Jesus, the angel, that this image is trying to unleash and unlock for us. Babylon. Now, for those of you in my generation, whenever you hear the word Babylon, you think of David Gray, don't you? Babylon. One thing that is less well known. Anybody heard of that song? Oh, praise God. 
One of the lesser known facts about me, when I was at university, I entered a pop stars competition. Do you remember that, Sarah Jane? Do we? Didn't you? And uh, probably, probably, probably the high point of my life so far. I actually sang a David Gray song uh, through the qualifying rounds and actually also in the final. It was actually Sail Away. And on the next parish church weekend, if you come with us, I promise you I'll give you a rendition of it. Sadly, I finished second. Uh, to somebody who sung Torn. It was brilliant. She was so much better than me. Anyway, Babylon. Don't think of David Gray. Don't think of me singing David Gray. Try and get your imagination into biblical, uh, the biblical imagination. But the story of Babylon really runs its way through Scripture and begins in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, uh, from which we get the name Babylon. And we have a, a reading, very brief reading from Genesis 11 here. Let me read it to you. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a place in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, listen to this, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. First time, Babel or Babylon comes up in Scripture, and notice the spirit of Babylon. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a tower to heaven. Babylon, the impulse behind Babylon, is the impulse to do life without God, to do cities without God, to do realities without God, to build nations without God, to live independently of God. This is the very same impulse that Adam and Eve fall prey to. This is the impulse that the dragon that Satan is trying to capture every human life into. You would be better if you did life without God. That's the Babylon mindset. That is the thing that the woman stands for. That is what she exists for. That is what she's trying to propagate in the world. And every city she influences, whether that be Rome or London or New York, whether every idea she influences, whether this be communism or capitalism, every single thing she touches turns to autonomy and turns away from God. Throughout the Old Testament, Babylon is used as a kind of a placeholder for different cities and different nations. And Rome, by the time of John, Rome is the one. Rome's the placeholder, but it's not really about Rome. It's about what Babylon stands for. So Babylon is any city, idea, political system founded on the attempt to do life without God. Daryl Johnson, you may remember that name. He's the one, he's the one you should blame if you're languishing in week 18 hereof our series on Revelation, because I read his book and was inspired. He says that there are seven characteristic ideas that tell us what Babylon is all about. I'm going to do these really quickly. Firstly, leaving God out. Babel, Genesis 11, let us build a tower. Let's build a tower into the heavens. Let us become like God. Is that the Satan says that, the, the, the snake, the dragon says that to Adam and Eve, right? If you eat this fruit, you'll become like God, knowing the difference in good and evil. So Babylon is all about leaving God out. 
spoken about this, I've bored you with this over a couple of years now, but the whole notion of secularism is that you can have your religion as long as it's private. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to school. Don't bring it to university. Don't bring it to your essay. Don't bring it into the public sphere. It doesn't belong there. Have it. Keep it private. Now, I thought the coronation was really interesting because there was a lot of God in it, right? But what struck me as I was watching it for the not whole service that I watched it was how increasingly rare it is in our culture to see that. Now, I'm actually not complaining about that necessarily. I'm simply remarking on it. Our nation is increasingly secular. That means that uh, publicly speaking, as, uh, as the Labour Party said many years ago, we don't do God. I think that was Alistair Campbell. Secondly, uh, leaving God out. Secondly, sensuality. I'm, not gonna, I'm actually not going to talk anything about that. I think that's self-evident. Sex sells. Thirdly, injustice. In uh, chapter 18, verse 13, I think we have uh, this. Listen to this. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense. This is all the things that relate to Babylon. Wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat. Cattle and sheep, horses and carriages. All those things, and then, and human beings sold as slaves. The last thing to be mentioned is human beings, and it is in the context of slavery. People in Babylon are a commodity. Not image-bearing creatures, but they, creatures become a commodity. That is the spirit of Babylon. I don't know if you know this, but in our very own city, in the University of Nottingham, there is a thing called the Rights Lab, and it is a world-leading research center. Millie Watkins-Smith, our very own, is, uh, is involved. She's doing a PhD there, I think, at the moment, and uh, you know, people leave other parts of the world where they're experts on this to come to Nottingham to work at the right, at the, uh, the right slab. Amazing thing. Uh, one of uh, Millie's professors has done a piece of research, and it, in, in their research, because I don't know if it's him or her, but in their research, they estimated that fifth, up to 50, it's about 50 million people globally are still in slavery. 50 million! That's Babylon! And actually, when you begin to think about why is that and how is that? Or maybe you say, well, that's got nothing to do with me. Well, no, it has everything to do with us because it's all connected to this global system that you and I are in. It's all part of the system. We're part of it and it's part of us. And that's what Babylon does. And you could say, well, that's capitalism. We need to overthrow capitalism and let's, you know, I won't say that. Let's get rid of oil and let's do this and let's do that. And yet these are things maybe we should be working on. But you know, there's no simple way to unpick this. Let's overthrow capitalism, try a different political system. Every single system is subject to the same corruption. The only system not subject to the corruption of Babylon is the kingdom of heaven. There is no single system on earth that will do it. We've tried communism, folks. It didn't work. It is making a comeback. In a powerful way at this point, and it will fail. And communism was responsible for the death of millions and millions and millions of people in the last century alone. 
This is what Babylon does. It's responsible for injustice. Fourthly, responsible for the worship of things. We have garages that we put our stuff in because we can't fit our stuff in our houses anymore. And then it overflows from our garages, and so we rent out places to put the stuff in that won't fit in on our garages because we have so much stuff. We line up overnight to buy the latest iPhone. That's the worship of things. As our own Adam Jones says, stuff and things. There's so much stuff and things. There's too much stuff and things. Fifthly, violence. National violence. War is a constant theme in our every society. But I just want to, for a moment, just say, have you noticed the level of violence on an individual level? The level of rage. There is a bubbling rage beneath the surface. It's a powerful, and I would say a palpable thing. Sixthly, deception. Seventh, idolatry. I think this probably sounds familiar to you. Let me come into land. This is the challenge wherever you live to being a faithful disciple of Jesus. Now, this may be the best Babylon you can imagine, but it's still Babylon. It's still Babylon. And those seven themes are as prominent here and as toxic to real discipleship as anywhere else. And you may even domesticate your vision of faith so that it fits within this Babylon and doesn't confront it. And that is, I believe, exactly where the church is at in our nation at this time. You know, the structure of our lives assumes the human attempt to exclude God. That's what it means to exist in Babylonness. But Babylon is falling. Evil will destroy itself. God is building a new city, a heavenly city, within the midst of the old Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. And the cross and resurrection represent the final defeat of the dragon. And the beast and the woman and everyone else arranged against the kingdom of God. And you and I will see the return of the king. And he will judge the dragon. And he will send him into the abyss. And Babylon will be conquered forever. And every single theme of the injustice and violence will be judged. The kingdom of darkness will be overcome. And the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven for which Jesus died and was raised, will be established fully and finally. And the question then for disciples of Jesus is, what do we do in the time between now and then? Here's what the angel says, verse 4 of chapter 18, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. Come out of her. Go where? Go where? Go to a, a commune in West Wales? Where it's you know, slightly cheaper to live? Should we all, let's all put a bit of money in and retreat. Found our own kind of community. I mean, I think like this when life's getting hard. I think, let's just all go away. Let's just all, fa-. I do, I do this quite often. I talk, it's sad. Go where? We, wherever we go, 
In Babylon we will be. Because I'll be there. I'll bring Babylon with me. Be in the world, but not of the world. This is the call upon the church of Jesus. Be in it, but not of it. See it as it is and reject it. Come out of Babylon. Live in the world, but don't become influenced by the world. Romans 12, 1-2 speaks all about this. Have your minds renewed so that you can attest and approve God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Worship Him, not the beast. Don't join in with the worship of the woman. Don't fall in line with the empire, with capitalism and communism and everything else. Don't fall in line with the vision of justice that Babylon speaks of. Become intoxicated with the vision of the kingdom. The question to the church today, my question to you, your question to me should be this. Where are you, Johnny, in bed with Babylon? Put it another way. To which city... Are you oriented? Babylon or the New Jerusalem? There's a man in the last century, I'll close with, close-ish with this. Leslie Newbegin, he was a bishop, uh, and he spent decades as a missionary in India. I think principally India. He may have gone elsewhere, but I think principally in India. And he returned to this country, and here is what he said. Since I came to live in England, he was English, but he lived many years in in India. Since I came to live in India, after a lifetime as a foreign missionary, I have had the unhappy feeling that ours is an advanced case of syncretism. Syncretism is the molding of the church and culture. God and. God and state. Anyone? God and culture. In other words, instead of confronting our culture with the gospel, we're perpetually trying to fit the gospel into our culture. In our effort to communicate, we interpret the gospel by the categories of our culture. This is why renewal movements are always repentance movements. Let me end with the leadership conference. There was another session in the evening of the Monday. And some of the folks have been involved in the outpouring in Asbury, which we've mentioned a few times here. We're there. There were a number of the, uh, I'm going to say kids. That ages me. But let's be honest. Compared to me, they were kids in their late teens and early 20s who were involved in it. They were there as well as one of their leaders, a guy called David Thompson. And what was interesting about what they said is that it was so simple. There was obviously a purity to the movement of the power of the Spirit in that place there, were no, there was no smoke or mirrors. There were no green rooms. There were consecration rooms, but that's a different thing. And David Thompson said this. He said, humility never goes out of style. And I was like, oh my gosh, write that down. I think this is a word for the church collectively. Humility never goes out of style. A word for the church in this nation. A word for leaders. A word for disciples, humility never goes out of style. Wouldn't it be amazing if the church was known again for the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Babylon is pride, the spirit of Jesus is humble. What a beautiful vision. Collectively, more humility in the church. There is a need for that. And it's interesting, isn't it, seeing 
God judging. God judging the church. Judgment always begins with the house of God. Movements and leaders and where there hasn't been sufficient humility. He said this, and I'm speaking now, not just collectively, but now individually. He said this. He said that at the time, it was obvious God was doing something, and it was happening so quickly. So a number of us who were older got in a room, and we said, it's our job to support this. We're not going to be up front. We're going to stay quiet and behind the scenes. But we need to support those Gen Zers, Gen Zers, who are going to be leading this. And they said, we were making decisions so quickly that we made the decision we would not be offendable. We're going to be talking. We're going to be, have to be really straight with each other. And if we're not careful, people could get offended. And what happens when people get offended is they subtly pull away. And a distance gets brought between people. And then he said this. This was a mic drop moment. He didn't drop his mic. He just carried on as if he'd said nothing. He said, awakening moves at the pace of friendship. We have allowed in the church a fence to build up so that you and I are no longer holding hands, no longer shoulder to shoulder, but we're just slightly distant from each other. And that's happened within congregations, and that's happened between congregations, and that's happened between denominations. Here's the thing about the persecuted church. The persecuted church understands that they can only get along when they're together. So to come out from among Babylon means that we must wake up to the degree that Babylon has shaped our corporate and individual life. And I believe that has a corporate expression to it, an outpouring of the Spirit, leading to a movement of repentance, characterized by humility, but also through the laying down of offense, through the forgiveness of people who have wounded us, maybe even people who have wounded you many, many years ago for the sake of the free flow of the Holy Spirit. I would love us to spend a moment just in confession.